0: Welcome, you're listening to an Ignite Harvest Ministries podcast with Evangelist Jorash Governor. We pray that this word will inspire, impart and ignite a passion in you for God and the advancement of His kingdom. So I'm going to be talking about the cost of discipleship. What does it mean to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Him? And we're going to look at this in the context of Numbers chapter number 6 from verses one to 27. And many times people will speak against talking about a cost because they say, how can you say it's a cost to follow Jesus? It's a, it's a pleasure. It's a privilege. It's a delight to follow him. And yes, it is a delight, but even though something is delightful doesn't mean there isn't a price. And we've celebrated some uh, engagements and marriages here. And how many of you know, it's a delight to buy that ring to propose with that diamond ring to propose with. It's a delight, but it costs and in the same way it's a delight to follow God it's a delight to serve him but there is a cost there is a price that we pay and it is something that hurts at times even if you're relocating for your dream job in order to move it carries a cost you might have to leave your family you might have to leave what's comfortable there's always a cost for something that is worth it so let's go to the book of numbers and I'm going to talk about the vow of a Nazarite. And interesting enough, Pastor Daniel even mentioned it this morning about dedicating children to the Lord. And many times that was in the case of a vow of a Nazarite that was taken. So in Numbers chapter 6 verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. So, what is a Nazarite? A Nazarite was a Jew who took an ascetic vow, and it comes from the Hebrew word nazir, which means consecrated or separated. This was a vow that wasn't commanded, it was something that was voluntary. It was something that was an extra devotion for the Jew or the believer. It was something that was an extravagant devotion that they chose to take. It wasn't a law. They did it because they wanted to, not because they had to. And if we go to verse 3, it says, He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. In verse 5, All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed. For which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his, hair, of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die. Shall he make himself unclean? Because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll jump to verse 13. And it says, And this is the law for the Nazarite: When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, present his offering, cut his hair, and the vow is over. So the Nazarite determined the vow. They determined the length. They determined what they were going to give up. They set the bar on what they were willing to sacrifice for God. And anything that competed For a heart that was for God was cut out. So my question to you this morning is how much are you willing to sacrifice? So there were three restrictions on the Nazarite that they had to commit to. And they were very clear and symbolic for us today. It was no wine, no razor touching their head and not coming near any dead bodies. And if we look at the life of a Nazarite, it's very similar to that of a disciple. In Luke chapter 9 verse 23, It says, and he said to all, and this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. A Nazarite made a voluntary commitment and a disciple is one that's similar. One that would separate himself from the world and even at times be separate from those who are believers, who are normal believers per se. It's where there's a distinction between just doing church on a Sunday and truly taking up your cross. And these were people, the Nazarites, who something rose up within them. They didn't need to do this, but there was a passion inside of them that said, I want more of God. I want to do more for God. I want to devote myself wholly and consecrated to him, not because I want to, but because, not because I have to, but because I want to. And they volunteered a specific season or a portion or even sometimes their entire life to this vow and it's just like Mary with Jesus laying at his feet breaking that alabaster box which was worth a lot of money it was spike nod from the hills of India which was highly cherished and what would happen is a bride would usually save up a whole year's salary and use this on the nights of their wedding but she said no she got a revelation of the beauty of Jesus and said, I want to take this valuable thing that I've been saving even a whole year's salary for and break it before him because she cherished him. She loved him that much. And she probably thought, I'm going to take the best that I have and pour my love for my Savior. We need to give God our best and not what is convenient. And just like when she broke that there were people saying, no, is she crazy? Does she not know how much worth that is for? There are so many other uses that she could use that for. And people will do the same. When you make a commitment for God, they will say, no, you're doing too much. You're at church too much. You're serving too much. And I remember as a young teenager, people would tell me, no, I was just like you. Just wait until, until you get married or wait until your 20s or wait until you have kids. There were always, always something, some insinuation that, look, you're doing too much and this is not going to last. And people will always come against what is above the norm. And we must not get discouraged by that, but push on even further. And just like Mary say, we want to give our best, not what's convenient to God. God is not waiting for us to take the little bit of extra time that we have and serve Him. He's looking for us to give Him our best. Amen? And this was not a vow that was done to earn God's love. But because we are loved and because we want to love. And it's important to know that when you make this vow, when you make this sacrifice to God, you aren't doing it to earn His righteousness. You aren't doing it to earn acceptance by God. You are accepted by God already. And whether you promised God you would pray every day and you missed it, or you promised Him you're going to read the Bible in a year and you missed it, God still loves you. I want you to look to your neighbor and say, You are loved by God. So your righteousness does not depend on what you do for god but on what jesus has done for you so what i'm talking this morning about is is not doing something to earn our salvation not doing something to earn righteousness but from a place of knowing that god is for us from a place of having our identity in god from a place of being we start doing and a lot of people sometimes find their identity in what they do for God. We label ourselves as, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer for Jesus, or I'm an engineer for Jesus, or I'm a soccer player for Jesus. And we build our identity on what we do for God. I'm a musician. Uh, I play in the church. And what happens if something changes and you aren't able to do that anymore? Our identity and worth gets placed in the wrong place. And that's the complete opposite of what Jesus had died for. We need to remember that we are who we are by the grace of God, a daughter, a son, a king, a queen, a royal priesthood, and a chosen generation. This is not about earning anything. It's about being in God and flowing from that. So how much do you love? And I'm going to look at three examples of Nazarites in the Bible. And these were people who had great impact um, in in the history of, of the church, in the history of God. And where there was sacrifice, there is always impact that is birthed. So if you're sitting here and saying that you want to make an impact for God, that you want to move in the power of God, the anointing is going to cost you everything. There's a price that you have to pay to make an impact. Most people are not willing. We'll say it's fine, we'll go to church, we'll worship God, we'll do a bit of a Bible study. But are we willing to pay the price in fasting, prayer, and holy consecration to God in an intense, consistent, and dedicated way. Daniel lived a devoted lifestyle. He prayed three times a day, and from the age of a young boy, they estimate that he was probably around 13. And even until he was 70 and above, he was still praying three times a day. He made a lifelong commitment to God. So it's not about how young you are. And Smith Wigglesworth, one of the great evangelists, only started his international ministry when he was 60 years old. So it's not about how old you are either. Whether you are old or young, if you have breath in your body, if you are still walking and talking, that means there is a purpose inside of you that God wants to bring out. So don't give up. If you were saved at a later stage in your life, it's not over. There is still purpose for you. You're not here to occupy a space in church. You're here to fulfill a mandate that God has placed upon your heart and fulfill it for your generation. Somebody else's encounter is locked up inside of you. Somebody else's salvation, in a way, is locked up in your obedience. Amen. So what are the three Nazarites we can look at in the Bible? The first one was Samson, which we spoke about earlier. In Judges 13, 5, it says, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And he was born one and died one. And we understand he did fail. He broke his vow many times. But thankfully, God still turned everything around and you are still able to fulfill his purpose. So if you fail, there's still grace. And that's what God died on the cross for, to give us that grace and empowerment to push through any failure or mistake. Amen? So he was dedicated as a Nazirite for the purpose of delivering Israel from Philistine oppression. And in the Old Testament, he was one of the most anointed characters in the Bible. When he repented, the power of God came back. And in his death, he destroyed more enemies than his, than his entire life. So if you've messed up, if you felt like you failed God, it's not over. God can take any situation and turn it around and use it for his glory. If we repent and seek his face, he can turn any mess into a message. Amen. The second example is Samuel. In First Samuel chapter 1 verse 11, it says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And Samuel began in the prophetic ministry as well as a young man around 13 or 14. His words were God's words, his thoughts were God's thoughts and there was a price he had to pay for that anointing. When nobody else in his generation was hearing God, he was the only one who could still hear the voice of God. And it just takes one person with an extreme devotion to God to shake and change a nation. And we're more than one year. Imagine if we devoted ourselves to God and said, we want to see Peter Maritzburg shaken for Jesus. We want to see our city shaken for Jesus. We want to see our province and our nation shaken. If it takes one person to shake and transform a nation, how many are we here? How many can we put to flight? Amen. And the last one, John the Baptist, and we've heard of John the Baptist a lot. In Luke chapter 1 verse 13 it says the angel said to him do not be afraid Zechariah for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be a, be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb he was consecrated from birth he was filled the spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb god had anointed him and selected him for a purpose in john chapter 5 verse 35 jesus is speaking of john the baptist and says he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light john was a burning and shining lamp in the desert people came by the thousands to listen to this wild man preaching dressed up in crazy clothing uh, eating locusts and all of those sorts. He wasn't your normal, conventional, well-put-together preacher. But yet, because of the consecration on his life, people flocked by the thousands to so listen to this man preaching. Who here wants to say that you want to be a burning and shining lamp in your generation? Whether it's in your school, in your workplace, in your family, you can be a burning and shining lamp to your city. John Wesley said, set yourself on fire and people will come to what you burn. When you devote yourself to the Lord, he consumes you like an all-consuming fire. And there's something that's different about you. When people look at you, they sense that holiness. When you walk into a room, people suddenly sense that the atmosphere has changed. If you want to get on fire, you must get close to the one on fire. God is that all-consuming fire. Another minister by the name of Charles Finney was a great revivalist. and In over nine weeks, 500,000 people repented at his preaching. This man was so on fire that he once walked into a factory and the moment he entered, all of the workers fell onto their knees and began to repent and seek God for salvation. And that's not something restricted to to the revivalists of old. It's not something restricted to the great prophets and preachers of earth today. It's something that every single Christian has access to. All that must happen is you must devote yourself to seek the face of God and trust him for his power to fill your life. There's a fire that can come upon you that can change everything around you. If we want to change a substance, if we want to change the world, we must be different to it. We must be of a different makeup to it. Just like fire, when fire touches water, it changes its composition. It transforms it into something else. If we want to transform the world around us and save the lost, we cannot be like them. We must be different to them. We must be of a different makeup. We must be made up of a substance that is from heaven. That when we touch anything, it changes the composition. When we touch a situation, it changes it. When we pray for the sick, we see a healing. When we enter a broken home, God's power comes and restores. But there's a price that we must pay for that. And the price of a Nazarite was ultimately that of sacrifice. And I like to define it as, To give up the extreme pleasures of this world for the extreme pleasure of enjoying God. If we go back to verse 3 in the book of Numbers chapter 6. It says, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. So the first thing they did, they separated themselves from wine and strong drink. And this represents joy. It represents fulfillment. It represents the good things. It's not about not sinning. We know we're not supposed to sin. So denying yourself is not stopping doing the wrong things it's not stopping uh fulfilling lust or anything like that there it's doing things that are seemingly good there's nothing bad about it but it's something that gives you enjoyment that's competing with the enjoyment of God's presence in Psalm chapter 4 verse 7 it says you have put more joy in my heart than they have when they when they grain and wine abound so, there's a joy that can come from the presence of God that's greater than anything this world can give us. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. True joy comes from the presence of God. So, we must deny ourselves of good things, we must deny ourselves of things that are competing for time for competing with our hearts, competing in our minds for the things of God. And I remember there were many seasons of devotion that I went through as a young person because I I heard a message just like this. And I said, I want to do that. I want to transform a nation. I want to change the world for Jesus. And I know it requires devotion. I remember I used to love playing on, on my PlayStation. And when this fire got a hold of me, I said, I can't do this anymore. I went and I sold it and I bought my first study Bible by myself and I begin to devour that in the time that I would spend sometimes hours previously playing. And that's just a silly example, but there's many things in our day that occupy time that we could spend seeking God, whether it's it's Netflix series or movies or socials or food, yet sometimes we struggle to spend just 15 minutes with God and It's such a shame because the creator of the universe is waiting to spend some time with you. The creator of everything that you see around you, of every galaxy, of every star, of every planet is wanting to commune with man. What is man that he is mindful of him? Yet we displace time with God for everything else that's just temporary. It's time for us to to make a difference, to make a commitment, to say, I'm willing to give up these certain pleasures that are not bad but I want God instead. I want more of God instead. The second thing the Nazarite did in verse number five, it says, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. And they weren't allowed to cut their hair. They weren't allowed to even comb it. They weren't allowed to even wash it. So you can imagine the sight. And what this resembled was, it was a symbol to everyone around that these people had made a commitment to God even though it brought them shame and within within the culture of the early church Paul even speaks about how a man that has long hair has dishonor to him and that's that's speaking about within that culture if you looked at a man with long hair it brought dishonor yet these Nazarites were commanded not to cut their hair because it was something that they had to carry a godly shame and many times in order to seek and fulfill the plans of God we have to endure a godly shame it's not easy to go up and pray for someone you know they might reject you it's not easy to go up to a friend and say hey can I share Jesus with you because that rejection is there but we must be able to say like a Nazarite I'm going to take this godly shame upon me I'm going to be ashamed for the gospel because in the eyes of the world the cross is foolishness so it comes with a price to seek God and for me one of the things that I had to bear in terms of godly shame was after trick, when all my friends were seeking out their careers and going to university, I felt God calling me to go to Bible college. And yes, it's a pleasure to serve God, but it wasn't easy when every teacher is, is finding out, what are you studying next year? And I'm saying, I'm going to Bible college. It's like, Bible college, what do you mean? And what are you going to do the rest of the time? And that was a sacrifice that I had to make. I had to choose to lay myself down for that period and seek God over the secular seek God over the riches that a secular career could have brought me. The convenience, the stability, all of those things. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I chose to make that sacrifice for God. Even in my school days, there were many times it was, it was something that was shameful for people to discuss. I remember people coming up to me when they heard that I was, I was praying for people and I had a youth group and, and all of those things and they would say, "Hey." Can you meet me behind the block? I want you to pray for me. And while other people were meeting behind the block to do other things like smoke or, or do all of those nasty things that people do in schools, there were people who were hungry for God, but they were ashamed of it. They wanted to be hidden. But not, nevertheless, I went through with it. And I remember praying for someone in a classroom for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I remember prophesying to them and seeing them breaking down before me. When you pay that price, you can make an impact. If you want to make an impact, there has to be a cost to it. So defining this godly shame, it's, it's where someone is willingly taking up that upon himself, which brings shame and conquers your pride. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing resisting us. It's pride. We don't want to lose pride. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be called a fanatic. But we must lay that down for the sake of the kingdom. And number three, they could not come near a dead body. In verse six, it says, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother. That's a bit harsh. They couldn't come near a dead body. And they were saying to God, God, even if my mother died tomorrow, I'm not going to go to the funeral because I'm not going to violate this vow. And it was a symbol of their and a reminder to everyone around of their total dedication to the Lord in Luke chapter 14 verse 26 it says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple for whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple and this is not talking about hating them it's talking about where your love for God is so great in comparison to everything else, it looks like you hate even your own family. And there's many times where there's Christians in certain nations where giving their, their life to serve God means losing their family. It means getting kicked out of home because it's, it's, it's a crime. It's an offense within those certain places to serve God. For me, I remember there was a two-year period where even my own parents tried to convince me not to go to Bible college like any good parent would They They were concerned of what will happen. They were concerned for my stability. And there were conversations and conversations that we had had. I even had pastors lay hands on me to cast out the spirit of foolishness because I wanted to to devote myself to God in that way. And with all that resistance, I still had to push through. And I saw God move in my life because of that and I 'm not saying that's something that you need to do if you're if you're a student it's it's different for every person the call of God is unique and tailor-made for every single person but within your context what is it that you can sacrifice for God maybe it's saying this December instead of having a party you're going to devote yourself to prayer and study of the word maybe it's saying that in the next few months you're going to to take time off from from eating out glamorously and using that that time and money for the, towards the kingdom. Whatever it might be, you ask God, what is it you, you want me to sacrifice? So ask yourself, what is it that I can sacrifice for God? If we are to reach our generation, we will have to be consumed with His holy fire. And our generation will be lost without God. But we can save the masses if we are willing to lay down our lives for the cause of the kingdom. And It's important to remember that the salvation of this generation, the salvation of all the people around us, lies with us. God is counting on us to begin to act. He's counting on us to take up our cross and follow Him. So this morning, my question to you is, will you take up your cross and become a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're already doing it, but how can you intensify your devotion? Amen. Can we all stand? If you desire to see the nations of the earth transformed by the power of the life-changing gospel, become a partner with this ministry. For more information, go to our website, igniteharvest.com.